0: Welcome to the podcast Inspirational Minds. We are now on episode three of our first season and we already have listeners from 45 different nations across the world. Today we are proud to present our guest, Dr. Najatir Dow Sulheim. She is a doctorate in clinical and forensic psychology from the University of Surrey in England and an expert negotiator from Harvard Law School. She is the author of The Leadership Pin Code, which debuted on the 2020 Forbes list of eight books that will change the way you handle relationships. She has 25 years of practical business experience across diverse sectors for governments, corporate, healthcare, and more recently in the oil and gas industry. She's now working as a psychologist and CEO of her company Progressing Minds, and today She's here to talk about her book, the Amazon bestseller, The Leadership Pin Code. Welcome to the podcast, Nasha Chair Dow Sulheim.
1: Thank you very much, Ariane. Glad yeah. to be here.
0: So, today we're going to talk about, uh, first of all, your book, uh, which is called The Leadership Pin Code. Uh, but also, first, we'd like to dive into a little bit about your background and who you are uh, before we start and um, so I read that you are a forensic psychologist and Harvard Law educated negotiation expert. Is that right?
1: That sounds like a lot doesn't it? Yes well let me tell you a little bit about the psychology Uh, to begin with. I am trained as a clinical psychologist actually originally which is a discipline of psychology where we specialize in the assessment and treatment of people with mental health issues, mm-hmm. and I did that in England uh, many, many years ago. but I was fascinated in particular with working with people who'd had extreme experiences or had challenging personalities because i 've always been interested in in people with challenging personalities, and that took me into forensic psychology so Although I was a trained clinical psychologist, I then specialized in working with Criminals, effectively people who had committed offences, and the kind of um, mental health issues they might present with. So I became a clinical and forensic psychologist. Yeah. Uh,
0: when you worked in that field, um, what would it, what would a typical day look like for a, for a, for a person who works in that
1: field? So that's a curious question, right? Yeah. I worked in what we call a maximum security hospital. Okay. And we called it a hospital rather than a prison because although the patients, as we call them, again, not inmates, but patients, were locked up and they were in maximum secure settings. So there were, you know, bars on the windows, big heavy iron doors, wee wore keys. The fact that they had mental health problems, as well as having committed offences, meant that they were offered treatment for those mental health issues in a, ho- in a maximum security hospital setting. Mm-hmm. And so what that looked like was we would typically have a, a number of appointments with different patients on the different wards in this very secure hospital, and it might mean a one-to-one meeting, sitting like I am um, in a room with you, and talking through perhaps why somebody has committed the offences they have, what were the triggers, um, what kind of background experiences did they have that had led them to committing those offences, and where do the mental health issues that they are struggling with fit in. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is, for example, psychotic, was that something that was a part of uh, what happened to them when they were committing offences. So is that the reason they committed the offences, if you like? They were very ill at the time. Mm. Or is it that as uh, later on, long after those offences had taken place, they became ill, they became unwell? And how do we then uh, understand the role of mental illness and what they've done? But mm. our role really was there to assess, risk assess, and then to offer a treatment um, plan where we thought that was Relevant or, or necessary,
2: mm. so
1: we were often meeting with offenders who committed very serious and very dangerous crimes, and maybe even at risk of becoming violent towards us. Mm-hmm. But we would meet them on a one-to-one in a room, always with the support of nursing staff or you know other people around who could make sure that we were safe.
0: Yeah, did you you know come to like a conclusion in the work that you know working with these um, individuals in case of. I heard another podcast with you that uh, you talked about was it something that was, you know, are people born that way or is it something in the environment that shapes them that way? Did you come to a conclusion to that?
1: It's a question I still um, have in my own mind and I know a lot of people are still curious about it, as to whether you were born this way or you developed this way. Yeah. In my experience, and it's really talking from my experience rather than what research might tell you, Mm. many or most of the people that I met in those very extreme situations had had quite difficult backgrounds and experiences. That is not to say that that is why they then went and committed their offences, because there's a lot of people who have difficult lives and don't go on to commit awful offences. So it's not a cause and effect but there certainly was a relationship between these people and the kinds of experiences they'd had and the choices they then made Mm. in life, Mm. which then took them onto a track where Mm. they made choices to commit these offences. So I talk very much about decision-making and choice. So I would say there was more experience on my part of people who weren't necessarily born, you know, a baby is born without knowing how to commit these kinds of offences. Mm. And it's really about the experiences they had and the things they learned along the way. Yeah.
0: This was back in the UK?
1: This was back in the UK, yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then you, at some point, moved to Norway. So you have your base here now and living in Norway, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. So uh, what was your first you know, job in Norway?
1: So I was working for myself when I moved to Norway. My yeah. son was two years old at the time and I wanted to have the flexibility of working Uh, and being able to care for him. So I I was running the business I run now, Progressing Mm. Minds, in England. And when we moved to Norway, um, I carried on commuting to England and carrying on that consulting work. Uh, Once we decided to stay in Norway, uh, I then started to look for, really, if I'm going to establish a base here, wanting to be able to work with a company that Mm. uh, would give me that experience of really living and working in Norway and learning the culture and learning... Uh, the way w- the way things work around here, and I had my first job then in what was then called StatOil, yeah,
0: Equinor, but yeah, that later became yeah, Equinor,
1: mm. absolutely. So That was my first job, and I was working as a leadership coach. Yeah, so I took the psychology that I'd learned, and I'd trained as a coach in the meantime, mm-hmm. and then really wanted to work in a in a setting where I could coach leaders using the skills that I had yeah. to be more effective.
2: Mm.
0: What was your first impression of, um, of you know, working in work environment in Norway uh, compared to the UK? Was it different or was it uh, similar, you think?
1: It was really different and I have a very, very specific memory that brought that home to me. I remember very early on in the company and I was used to a very British culture, which, which is more hierarchical mm-hmm. in the way that leaders manage mm-hmm. uh, their employees. So you... You wouldn't leave the office typically before... And this is many years ago now, 13, 14 years ago, but you wouldn't typically leave the office before your leader did, and certainly not without letting them know that you were leaving the office. And you certainly wouldn't be late without informing them as to why you were going to be late. And I'm talking, you know, 15, 20 minutes, even half an hour. Mm. Um, and I remember being in, at work in, in, uh, in the office in Norway and having had a problem in the morning with my two-year-old getting him to nursery on time. And running late and feeling quite anxious about the fact that I was going to be late to work, maybe by about 20 minutes or half an hour, ringing ahead uh, my leader at the time and saying to him, I'm really sorry, I'm going to be 20 minutes late. But the moment I get in, I'll make sure I work later or I'll cover my lunch by working. And he, I remember his response very clearly, he said, Nashta, why are you calling me? (laughs) And I said, well, you need to know where I am. He said, I really don't. And then when I got into the office, and we followed up that conversation, and he, you know, he explained to me. He said, "We, it's not the same in England where your visibility is important. It's what you do and you what you achieve that's important. Mm. And you don't need to let me know whether you're going to be twenty minutes late." And that really then opened my eyes to a lot of other things. I was starting to realize were very different about the business culture uh, and the culture itself in the country, which mm-hmm. was that it's much more about empowering people to do the work and get the work done than it is about being seen to be in the right place at the right time and be seen to be doing things Mm -hmm. so I found that really refreshing and much flatter um, management structure you know leaders were much more accessible Mm -hmm. it wasn't about closed doors and making appointments to have a conversation with your manager you could bump into them in the corridor no matter how senior they were and you know expect to be able to have a conversation
0: trust or is it
1: I think it is about giving trust very easily to people and assuming the best, Mm. you know, that if you give them the trust, they'll do what they need to do and uh, assuming that they have the best intentions to do that. And I think that's really refreshing.
0: If you were to choose one business culture, would you think is best? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a trick question because you, what, what best is really i don't know that i would say best but the one that suits me best yeah. is definitely the the scandinavian or norwegian yeah. management culture i think it's it gives you far more freedom and flexibility you feel very empowered um also i think it gives the opportunity to be creative and challenging mm. uh of things in the status quo because there's an open yeah. door policy for that
0: maybe also if um Depends on maybe the task that is going to be delivered, but maybe in some cases, you know, the UK model business culture would work better, maybe.
1: I think different industries, different businesses, different yeah. goals, as you say. Definitely, yeah. you know, there's a there's a case for different kinds of management or leadership depending on the context. Absolutely, yeah. I would agree with that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so then you're in Norway and you're working in uh, Stadtsall. Uh, the old Equinor name right mm-hmm. yeah so uh, you worked with um, leadership programs right or right yeah yeah like in a coach uh, role or- so I was
1: a both an individual coach and I was um, responsible for designing and developing and delivering programs all
2: right
0: yeah yeah was that like kind of programs that went uh, you know was it duration of years or was it like a small...
1: Usually several months at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. certainly for a, a number of different sessions over a period of months. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then after that, you just stick to your company again? Uh, or was you hired in Statoil or... or uh...
1: No, I worked as a full-time employee in Stattel, Yeah, So yeah, I wasn't yeah. working for myself. I yeah. was actually a full-time employee in the company. Yeah. yeah.
0: So then you turned back to Progressing Minds afterwards,
2: right? So
1: after a while, I did another job in between, but I really wanted to get back to working for Progressing Minds and working yeah. as a psychologist yeah. uh, in the way that I work. Yeah. yeah. My identity has always really been connected to being a psychologist. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And now your typical clients are business leadership, right? Right. In that manner. Right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So... Um, turn it into, you know, the book, The Leadership PIN Code. And uh, when did the the idea of the book come across? When did you decide to write it or start?
1: It was a, what we call I call a creeping process, meaning that I never set out to write a book and I never thought I would ever write a book. It didn't really enter my mind. But as I started to engage my clients in the kind of ideas I had about what made leadership effective. I developed this framework that is now in the book, but this is going back four or five years ago, that I would coach them in. You know, these are the skills I think that are important for leaders to be effective, and this is a really helpful way to train those skills. And the more I did that and the more clients gave me positive feedback that they thought it was quite simple and easy, but it made sense and it was effective that they would ask me if I'd written it anywhere. Mm. And, of course, I had PowerPoint slides and I had PDF yeah. documents that I could send them, but I'd never written it formally down. But part of what I do is very experiential. It's mm. it's what you do rather than what you read that I that I that um, I burn for. So I hadn't written it down, but after a few years, I began to get enough, I think, clarity on what it was that I was coaching, but also enough demand for sitting down and thinking about putting it together in a format where... I could at least give that to my clients. And that was really the purpose of the book. It was a gift back to my clients to be able to say, this is what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. These are some of the, you know, um, techniques I've been describing, and you can have them in a manual. It's very much a simple, plain English manual rather mm. than a textbook. Mm. Um, so that's how the book came about. It was really a, a giving it back to my clients mm. based on the work that we've done, to, done together.
0: Yeah. I think maybe a, like a headline from, I read the book and... Uh... You know, to sum up in some quotes, maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that some takeaway from the book could be like, people don't leave the jobs, they they leave the leaders. Right. Um, I I think you agree, because, you know, that's what you write about.
1: So that's a phrase that I think anybody listening will say, well, I've heard that a lot in a lot of other places. And it's not something I I made up myself. Um, It's something I've heard for years around. Mm -hmm. I've experienced myself that if, you know, where I've not been happy, it's not necessarily that I've not enjoyed the role I had, but maybe have not enjoyed the kind of leadership I was exposed to. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that around me, both when I've been an employee, but also then when I've been working with leaders, that there is a truth to that, which is why I then included it in the book, because I'd heard it enough, read it enough, Mm -hmm. experienced it enough to really think that it merited being put in, that leaders in the end, and this is my view are responsible for creating a great day at work for their people. Mm. They are responsible for that. Of course, employees have their own responsibility to look after their own uh, mental health and well-being and, and to be motivated for what they do. But once you are at work and you're part of a team, I really think it is the leader's responsibility to make sure that their, their team are in, having a good day at work, whatever that looks like for them.
0: Mm. Do you think maybe many leaders will think about leadership as something about themselves and not the, the people they lead, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I think uh, you know one of the things I talk very often about in the book is that leaders spend a lot of time in their own heads. They're so caught up, understandably, because they're busy and they have a lot of demands. Uh, life can be very challenging as a leader, especially if you're working in um, a, lo- a large organization with a lot of people reporting to you, mm. that you can get so caught up in what's important to you and what you need to get done mm that you're more focused on making sure that gets done and these people who report to you just do it, Mm. then you are about what leadership is actually about, which is inspiring and empowering people to do that rather than just telling them and pointing at them and ticking ticking off the tasks. Yeah. So leadership is much more about how we, in my view, how we motivate and inspire people to do that work without needing to tell them exactly what to do.
0: Yeah. And... Can you explain the difference between um, the entitled leader versus the engaged leader?
1: So they're they're the two ends of of a continuum for me rather than a category that you're either one or the other. It's more a case that I think that you'll find at one end of that spectrum leaders that I call entitled. And they're really the ones who you'll hear saying things like, you know, well, I've been doing leadership for years. I know this. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to learn anything new, um, you know. I am the leader, they just need to do as they're told. This Why is should I have the This Is the entitled yeah. leader? Yeah. You know, yeah. that kind of I'd say it's a sense of I have the title, I have the power, they should just do it. You know, I'm I'm entitled to just tell people what to I'm do and boss. have them do it, yeah. and I'm the boss, yeah. right? So mm. it's that I want to use the word arrogant at the extreme end mm. because it's really about, you know, it's all about me and it's about my power and it's about my needs, and people should just get on with it because mm. that's that's what I'm paid to do, and you know, that I deserve that kind of mm. authority and power. And uh, I call those entitled.
0: If you were put uh, a celebrity on it, uh, just to you know exemplify what an entitled leader is, do you have some... So now you
1: want me to name people who you think would be entitled <laughs> and really hang myself out there. So I'm not going to do that. But what I would say is, if you look at politicians, yeah, you probably could quite easily put some politicians on the very entitled end of the spectrum. You know, yeah. I am... I am powerful. I am. I am fantastic. I know everything. I have the answer to everything. I can solve everything. In a way, I am my own team. I know it all, yeah. and that's really at the far extreme end of the of the spectrum where it's all about the leader and it's not about anybody else really.
2: Yeah.
1: And I, you know, my view is that you're not a leader unless people are following you. Yeah. Then I mean, you're just on your own. So if you are that entitled that you think you can solve everything yourself and you don't need to learn anything from anybody else then you probably are alone and you're probably not leading at all. Yeah. That, that would be the entitled end. Yeah. At the engaged end, you've really got a leader who, even if they have had the role of a leader before and years of experience and have been on a lot of programmes, they are nevertheless open to learning and being curious about what they can learn in this role. And they're engaged, and that's why I call them engaged, they're engaged in the idea that there might be something new to learn, there might be something more to know. Maybe I've not met this group of people before, so they're new to me at least, I need to learn them. Hmm. Maybe I haven't led in this type of organisation before, or maybe I haven't had this kind of senior role before, or this task. And that curiosity and openness to engaging in order to learn to get the job done is what I call effective leadership and is the engaged end of the spectrum
0: mm. and that's what we're looking for right
1: that's absolutely what yeah. I think we should be moving the needle from being entitled towards engaged. moving mm. to engaged yeah
0: yeah so coming into the, the, the name of the book like uh, the uh, leadership pin code uh, so the pin stands for the P stands for persuasion right, right, right. Yeah. what do you uh, you know put in that
1: So persuasion for me, I often talk about all three together rather than separating them out because there is a lot of overlap between Mm. those three skills, which is why I put them together in PIN. And Mm. PIN's a neat way of remembering it, of course. But they actually have an overlap in the skills. The ability to persuade, influence, and negotiate, they all have in common putting the other person rather than yourself into the center of the picture. And trying to understand what the other person's interests are in doing whatever it is that you want to do. Whether it's asking for help or support or trying to get more resources or a greater salary increase. Getting out of your own head and getting into the head. Well, what's what's the other person's interest here in helping me or supporting my request or giving me what I want? What's in it for them? And all three of those skills Always, if you look at the literature on any one of those, they will all talk about get into the head of the other person, think about what drives them, what motivates them, why they would be interested in, in helping you achieve what you need. I mean, if you think about leadership, that's exactly what leadership is about. It's about how do I motivate these people? Yes, they're paid to work for me, but if I want the extra mile, if I want the willingness
2: mm. to
1: give their best then I need to understand what drives them, what motivates them, what's in it for them to do that. Mm. So if I start there, then being persuasive, you know, helping somebody to see my point of view and move towards my point of view or influencing them to, you know, to want to give more, to be more effective, negotiating maybe on whether it's salary or resources or support. You know, if I do this, you know, what can, if I want this, what can... I give you to, you know, to kind of trade in a way mm. uh, that we both come out with a win-win. So for me, the skills are overlapping and they are really about putting the other person's interests ahead of your own so that you can create that win-win if you like.
0: Yeah. So in your coaching, uh, mm-hmm. you, you train people to be better using their pinko, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Do, you, do you work in, in like coaching groups or is it like one-on-one and the um, two leaders or both
1: so both actually I a lot of my work is sparring with um, senior leaders that's one-to-one conversations and sometimes it's coaching where it's much more an open conversation about you know helping them to work out their own way and journey and and learning these skills uh, developing their own pin code you know what works for them sometimes it's sparring it's problem solving it's sharing my experiences of I've been a leader myself yeah. Um, in uh, large corporations and smaller ones. So I have an experience of what it means to lead and I can share some of those, those challenges and you know successes that they may f- find useful in their own journey. So a lot of my work is one-to-one. I like working with senior leaders. And the reason for that is, in my view, they're the ones that really hold the culture of an organization. What they do really filters down into the rest of the organisation and mm. they have a responsibility to role model the mm. culture that they're looking for mm. so I like to work with them because I really hold them accountable for delivering what they expect
2: mm.
1: of their organisation so yeah. they're the decision makers they're the influencers Yeah. so I, a lot of one-to-one work but then I also do team work so these leaders naturally have teams and often what they're trying to do is, is either strengthen the effectiveness of their team in terms of delivery of results or they're trying to, to build a culture within the team, depending on what the task is or the company is trying to achieve. And then really working with them. You can see a leader best when you see them working with their team. Hmm. So when I, whilst I work one-to-one, I also like to see my leaders that I work with in their daily work setting. Yeah. And I can see them with their team, and I can see whether what they're telling me is,
2: it's true. is true or not, <laughs>
1: yeah. or where the challenges yeah. are, where the strengths yeah. lie. But so it, it's it, often teamwork.
0: Yeah. Because it's often it probably starts at the top, right? So, so a leader may, you know, say that his problem is the employees when it's really him or herself that maybe is the issue. Yeah, and and some some cases maybe.
1: Great point. Because when I've been invited in to help a leader and they tell me that they've invited me in to fix the team, yeah, then I always start with well, I start with the leader anyway. But I'm even more likely to spend more time with this leader and figuring out. Okay, so if you're getting it completely right and they're getting it completely wrong mm. then there's something lost in the translation mm. or that may not actually be the case mm. so i really need to see you in context mm. and see what's going on
0: yeah yeah you also, i read that uh, from the book that you know uh, employees don't know what a successful delivery is supposed to look like in some cases and that's uh, something that uh, is a problem for 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 a company but do you think uh, leaders you know, always understand what a successful delivery looks like? Or could it be the same problem there?
1: It could be the same problem there, of course, that they themselves don't know. They've been given a task and they themselves haven't checked out what success would look like mm. if they've been handed this by their own leader or by key stakeholders. And they haven't gone to the trouble of asking the question. So if I achieve this, You know, what will that look like so I can be very clear that I deliver what you want or what's expected of me? And then they just transfer that same lack of clarity onto their team. So it certainly can be the case that that just gets passed down from leader to to team.
2: Mm.
1: I, when I'm working with with leaders, really encourage them to be very explicit with themselves first about what is it that I want to see happen when I'm about to assign this task or ask my team to follow up. Uh, up on a uh, a project or whatever it is, I need to be able to describe what success looks like for me Mm. because it may look very different depending on who's describing that picture. Mm. If I give it to the project team without describing what I'm expecting, they will deliver a result. It may be a very good result, but it's not the result I wanted Mm. or in the format that I wanted or in the template I wanted. So to be very clear about some of the very simple, concrete expectations about, well... You know, I want it, but I want it in this format at this time, in this way, mm. can be very helpful to the team. And yeah. it saves a lot of confusion and conflict later on.
2: Mm.
0: You also talk about the ABC, yeah. uh, and that is related to the, you know, PIN code, right? Uh, so, uh, take us a little bit through the the ABC of uh, the approach and the behavior and the conversation. Yeah.
1: that That's the framework for training these PIN skills. So... Mm. I've said it in the book and I, I I say it really that often that there is a lot of literature available on any of these skills mm. and there's a lot of programmes you can go and train in any of these skills and, and learn more about them. The challenge I see a lot of leaders having and why I wrote the book and developed the framework is there's just too much information to absorb and to be able to readily use when you're back at work easily in everyday conversations, in everyday interactions with your team it can be very easy to get back to the office and forget mm. what you'd learned, mm. uh, even if it was very inspiring at the time when you learned it, even if you thought this was great and I was going to use it when I get back to the office. There's just so much that goes on in the daily environment that it's easy to forget. And some of these skills that you get trained in on these programs and these books talk about you may not use very often. They may be special case mm. you know, skills. Mm. You know, I only do it when I'm negotiating a big contract or... I'm only really going to use that skill when I'm holding a town hall meeting. Mm. And what I wanted to achieve really was a set of skills. They sound more complicated than perhaps they need to be that you can use every single day, whether it's having a quick conversation over at the coffee machine with uh, a colleague, and you need to be able to have a positive impact in that conversation, whether it's running a team meeting every Monday, or whether it's running a huge project over several months but it's a framework that you will not forget mm. and it's easy to remember and at the same time helps you train these skills that I think are important. So my neuropsychology background, working with brain injury and disease, I learned, uh, in, in that work I really learned a lot about how the brain learns, how we train new skills, particularly after injury or disease. And one of the things I really remember was the idea that uh, we like to learn Sets of information in chunks of three or four. There's a huge research base for this, uh, which I won't go into now, but it's really a a key takeaway that no matter how much information we get, Mm. we tend to remember it better if we can chunk it Mm. into three or four. So if you think about telephone numbers and car registration plates, we tend to read them off in those chunks because it's easier to remember.
0: Mm. Slogans.
1: Slogans, marketing, you know, absolutely. And they've really understood that. Yeah rule of three, we call it. Mm. So I wanted to be true to that learning and understanding that I had was, I know that leaders are challenged with too much to remember and too much information. And at the same time, I want them to be able to have a framework that's simple and easy to use every day. So I need to be true to the rule of three. And at the same time, it needs to be a meaningful rule of three. So I did a lot of analysis and research on what were the key skills if there were only three things that leaders did 1% better every day, what would those things be? And I crystallised it into these three things that I call ABC. Mm. A is your advanced preparation or your approach. So what kind of information do you prepare before you go into a conversation? How much do you know about the other person? Uh, Have you figured out what their interests are? Back to our earlier point, what motivates them, what drives them? What their stresses are, what their priorities are today? So that when you go and have the conversation, you are prepared to be able to make sure you take care of what they're interested in. Mm. That's going to get you more impact than if you ignore what there, mm. is on their mind at the moment. Your advanced preparation can also be your mindset. So making sure that you're very conscious about what you're bringing into the conversation. If you're stressed or angry or tired from something else, you know how is that going to affect the conversation you're about to have? So your A is really what I think is probably the biggest part of the effectiveness as a leader is how much do I prepare my mindset and my set of uh, data, if you like, before I go into Mm. the conversation I'm going to go and have? Then the second part I noticed, that I noticed a lot of leaders struggling with was body language. Mm. So they may well have thought about what they're going to say, and then they stand up and they go to say it, but there are a lot of things they're doing that are getting in the way of that message. Mm. It can be simple things like irritating habits, you know, clicking a pen or, you know, kind of sitting behind their pc when they talk or Mm. some people closing their eyes while they speak Mm. but it could also be that they're giving away unintentional signals so on the one hand they're smiling at you and and nodding and saying you know yes i agree but the rest of the body is telling you that they're really uptight and irritated and and disinterested
2: Mm. Uh,
1: so i really wanted leaders to pay attention not just to what they're saying but how they're saying it and making sure there's a a a match between what they're doing in the body language and what's coming out of their mm. their mouths and I also talk about B being the behavior of the room so I've learned a lot in psychology particularly working with criminals that how you arrange the chairs in a room for example can make the difference between creating a cooperative atmosphere versus a more let's say, confrontational atmosphere. So sitting across from a table with direct eye contact,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, big table between you can force very direct eye contact, which if the conversation is already going to be difficult, mm-hmm. then it's just going to make it even worse. Yeah. Whereas if you were to put your chairs in a V or a 90-degree setting, remove the board table, maybe have a small coffee table, if anything at all, immediately creates more natural eye contact softens the angle of confrontation to something more cooperative. Mm. So B was body language, but also room behavior. Mm. And it might even be that you don't use a room, you use mail or you use telephone or you, you know, do a walk and talk. And then C for conversation, well, clearly one of the things that leaders need to do is express their ideas and get them across in a clear way. Mm. Whether that's expectations or strategy or whatever it is. And how they do that... You know, what they say and the choice of phrases and words and responses and questions is in some ways quite a key skill. Particularly if you're going to have difficult conversations around, you know, giving somebody feedback about poor performance or there's a conflict. You know, Mm. how you phrase what you're going to say is very important can make a big difference between whether somebody hears that and is able to work with it or becomes defensive. So the ABC, three things your advanced preparation or approach, your behavior and your conversation. They're really the skills I coach leaders in and give them those tips and and tips and, I guess, ideas that I've trained in that I think would make them just that little bit better and more effective. And Mm. if you practice it enough over time, and the more of those skills you learn in those three Mm. areas, the more effective, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you think about some, you know, the best leaders or something you... you, You would maybe say that this, these are good at these three the Exactly. Exactly, yeah.
1: because yeah. I've watched a lot of leaders and it's, that was part of my research in yeah. trying to crystallize what it is that I thought great leaders do. And I watched a lot of leaders who I think are very effective,
2: mm.
1: some very public figures and some just great leaders I've had the privilege of working for and with. And it was those things that kept coming up in the pattern. They're really. They are really well prepared. They mm. remember who you are. Mm. They might remember your name. They might remember what you do. Mm. Uh, they remember what's important to you. They've done their homework before mm. they spoke to you in some way.
0: Do you think it can be artificial? You know, when if you're going to, if you're not very good at these the mm-hmm. ABC, and then you're suddenly going to be very good, uh, and you meet your if you are you know a manager and mm-hmm. uh, or a leader, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, Suddenly, you're going to be an expert in this one, and um, the next day at the coffee machine, you suddenly, you know, really have a different conversation with with an employee. Do you think that could be like an artificial experience for the employee, or do you think it will be only good?
1: It's a great question. I think it comes whether it feels fake or not, yeah, or, yeah, that's or authentic or not. Yeah is down to the i think that really comes from two oh, things the across, intention right? yeah. the intention of the leader when they do it
2: mm-hmm.
1: if you just throw out some you know question about the person's personal background where you've never been interested before <laughs> yeah i'm going to be skeptical too yeah. i think you have to come from a genuine interest to want to be a better leader mm-hmm. and if you if your intention is i really want to be a more effective leader then you're not going to come across
2: mm-hmm.
1: as just throwing out random questions and being fake you probably will take the time to explain to these members of your team, I'm trying to improve my leadership. I want to get to know you better. I'm just going to be open about the fact that, you know, I'm trying to be you know, closer to you. I'd like to learn more about you and just be genuinely interested and explain why you're doing it. Mm. But if you try and trick your employees, then, you know, they're going to notice it and it's not genuine. Mm. And if you're not genuine, then you're not leading. Mm.
0: Then you will not have an impact. You anymore.
1: won't have an impact, exactly. No.
0: Exactly Should you prepare as you know the preparation you're going to have a big meeting, you obviously put in a lot of work ahead, but maybe in the small meetings and things that doesn't seem so important, should you be as prepared every time or, or is it a different level of preparations according to what you're going to, to do?
1: I think the preparation has to be dependent on what you're trying to achieve. yeah, saying that. If it's, if it's important to you, then I would absolutely prepare to my best mm. for those conversations. Mm. Of course, whether it's a, a, a five-minute conversation or a three-hour meeting,
2: mm.
1: I might be having a five-minute conversation with somebody who really is important to me and my team. Maybe it's a difficult conversation about something that's not working. I would prepare very heavily for that five-minute conversation to make sure that it's a good experience for both of us. It's a learning mm. opportunity for, for both of us. And as much as I would spend time work preparing for a, a project meeting of three hours and really understanding who's in the room and what are they interested in and what do I need to make sure that they take away from the conversation
0: mm. and also it's probably something to do with experience right after a, after a time you will be more skilled in, these, uh, in the ABC so you'll be Better at it, I guess. You... I
1: think what happens over time, what a lot of leaders I've worked with over a period of time now with this, is eventually it becomes more natural to be curious. Yeah. So at the beginning, it feels a bit effortful. I'm having to remind myself to do the research to ask the questions. Mm. After a while, I realize it's quite fascinating to be curious. Yeah. And it feels more natural. Mm. And it becomes a mindset shift.
2: Yeah. Mm.
0: Uh, Coming over to an, another point, um, if you don't like the people you're leading, or you don't like your your uh, manager, or, um, what are your tips to uh, to a situation like that?
1: I think we first of all have to acknowledge that we can't like everybody we work with. It's not we don't need to expect that. We go to work. We don't choose our colleagues or our Often we don't get to choose our team members either. Yeah. So it's natural that we will come across people for whatever reason that we don't like. It might be that we just have different personalities that clash. It might be that they have irritating habits that annoy us, whatever the reason. It could be that you've had a conflict. But the point being, I think, first of all, let's acknowledge that it's, it happens uh, and that it's okay that that happens. But it's also very important to acknowledge that at work, we nevertheless have a responsibility to find a way around it Mm. because we have a duty and obligation to make it work for for the purposes of being in the job. So that said, I say to leaders that, first of all, just try not to pretend and give yourself a hard time that you don't like this person. Just acknowledge that you don't. See if you can work out why. That can help. And see if there's something about your own reactions that's getting in the way. And then the second thing is, well, how do I manage that anyway? Mm. And I encourage leaders to uh, and colleagues to do two things. One is prepare your ABC before you have every conversation with this person. Mm-hmm. Really address your mindset. If you're already going to go into the conversation thinking, I don't like him. He's irritating me. Every time I speak to him, I feel, you know angry or Mm. stressed, then that's going to show up in your behavior and the questions or responses you're going to give. So you're already setting yourself up for another repeat experience of a bad conversation. Mm. Mm. Whereas if you go into the conversation this time thinking, okay, clean slate, let me just go in and have the conversation I need to have for this task in hand, Mm. for this conversation we need to have. You open up for a new opportunity and a new experience. That person may also be having a different day mm. and may not show up with the same behaviours that irritated you before. Mm. So address your mindset. Mm. The second thing mm. I ask them to do is to do what I call opposite behaviour. So to prevent it, your dislike of this person or irritation showing up in your body language, it could be from your facial expression to yeah. your folded arms or, or tone of voice being sharp, do the opposite Deliberately try and feel the opposite by smiling, by relaxing your voice, by relaxing your body language, and then going into the conversation. It won't necessarily make you like the person more, but it means that you have a better chance of not triggering a negative experience with them mm. and giving away signals that you don't like the person, which if they pick up, it's just going to make for an yeah. unhappy conversation. And they will pick it up, right? Of course. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: And was, yeah, it's about being curious also, I guess. You know, to, to why is it that I don't like this person? Or
1: So f- see if yeah. you can figure out, right? Yeah, to my first yeah, point, yeah. To see if you can figure out what it is. It can sometimes be that they remind us of somebody else. Hmm. Or maybe we've had a disagreement and I, you know, haven't moved on from it. I haven't let it go. Hmm. Or it could be that this person is, doesn't like me for whatever I represent. It could be my position, my power, my mandate. Hmm. But whatever the reason, stay curious. And even if you can't solve the why... At least try and create a different conversation each time. So try and get out of that negative mindset. Mm. Try and do opposite behavior and try and stay curious to how can I make this a better conversation in this moment. Mm. What if if it's a, a person that you have a lot of contact with that you really don't like and you have to work a lot together? Then I encourage people to get to know each other better. Mm. Because sometimes we dislike people and we actually just don't know them well enough yeah. to know that we might have more in common with them than we realize. That's a good point. So getting to know people beyond their tasks and responsibilities or our likes and dislikes might open up for realizing that actually you have a lot more in common. Maybe you're both parents, maybe you both end up liking the same sport. You're not, not talking about becoming great friends, but it just means that you can now understand the person with a, a wider context.
0: Yeah. Why, uh, you know, why do you pe- think people, um, you know, work in jobs they don't like? Why don't they quit in
1: some cases? Gosh, that's a big question. I'm, I'm not sure I've got all the answers to that. I think people work in jobs they don't like. Maybe they don't have a choice. It's a job. Yeah. And they need a job. The economy, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. could be economy. It could be just survival, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes people going into jobs don't realise they don't like them. And then it's something that happens over time. Mm. And then it's a case of, do I just do it? Uh, Mm. It's a job. Mm. And I live for the weekend and I live for my (laughs) off time. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many different reasons people stay in jobs that they don't like. Um, Mm. I think a lot of the time it's, and especially nowadays, when we're not in a privileged situation where we can leave a job if we don't like it. It may really be a case of needing to get on with it. mm. Why people don't like their jobs, I think is a very interesting conversation. Mm. And then I get back to the culture of the organization and the leadership. Hmm.
0: That's a good point. You know, you're doing a management consulting. Uh, do you have a, if you could pick from every company there is, which company would you like to work with?
1: So I'm not going to actually answer <laughs> that question. You can probably understand why. I, you know, I really don't actually have a company that I would like to work with no. in the sense that, you know, that's something I'm striving or aiming for. I really enjoy working with people rather than companies. It's mm. not the company, it's the individuals it's, inside the companies that yeah. uh, really draw my attention. And that's really where I get my energy is from working with people who are motivated to work with their leadership, whatever kind of company. So I've worked with entrepreneurs who are just one-man one bands, if you like, or one-woman bands. Mm. I've worked with voluntary organisations, ch- charitable organisations. And then I've w- worked with... Fortune 100 companies, you know, great big, giant corporations. And what they all have in common is they have leaders who are people who are often struggling with the same issues, Mm. you know, dealing with multiple demands, Mm. multiple agendas, heavy task loads, Mm. big teams, small teams, but nevertheless teams that they need to mobilize. Mm. So it's not so much the company, I think, that has ever really drawn my um, attention to working uh, with them, but really the leaders within them.
0: Hmm. The last topic we're going to talk about from your book is: you um, says that you don't confuse presence with influence. What do you mean by that?
1: That was one of the first ideas that came up uh, for me when I started working with what I thought was the essence of effective leadership. I'd read a lot of books that were talking about the importance of getting a seat at the table, You know, how do you get your seat at the table, how do you get into top leadership,
2: Mm.
1: and really encouraging people to climb the ladder, try and get into decision-making arenas. And the more I reflected on that, the more I was thinking, well, that would suggest that by the time you get into those arenas, you're all delivering what you should and, and being as effective as you can be. And my experience as I got into those arenas myself was that was not the case. There were people who'd got their seat at the table... But weren't using it, weren't contributing, weren't having the impact or influence they could do, and yet they'd got such a powerful opportunity, Mm. a very important opportunity to make a difference or to have an impact. And it really, again, brought me back to this idea that leadership isn't about title and rank and mandate and arena. It's about how you use what you're given, which is this leadership opportunity to make a difference. So I wanted to really be very clear that I don't work with leaders because they have the right title, but because they've been given an opportunity. And since you've been given that opportunity, it's not your presence at the table that matters. It's the influence you have. Mm. So don't be satisfied because you've got to the position you always wanted to get to. Mm. Don't get comfortable and satisfied. Stay curious and active and have the influence you can have because you have that opportunity.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I talked to many people um, uh, from different jobs that I had, but uh, I talked to, ask young people, you know, what what do you want to be? And I want to be CEO. I want to be a manager. And then not so, they don't know so much about what it's um, it's supposed to be like, right? To have the, the, not the seat at the table, but, you know, the job is not about you. Right. So, so so I think that's a good message for all the people that are, you know, thinking about what they're going to be and uh, what is really managed, you know, leadership about.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And and the, you know, there's a great phrase, isn't there? With great uh, power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And I think if you have got a seat at the top table where decisions get made, where policies are set, where strategies are agreed you have a, an enormous responsibility to use that opportunity to have positive influence mm. and not to become complacent about the fact that you've arrived.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay, we're coming uh, to the end. Where can people find you if they wanna be in contact with you or you know, work with you?
1: So I've got a couple of places. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. If they're yeah. on LinkedIn, you just key in my name and I'm pretty good at getting back to people on private messages if you send me a message there. You can find me on progressingminds.com. And you can also just Google my name, if you can remember it, <laughs> Natasha yeah. Tadda and maybe it'll be written down. And I have a personal website there. So you can find me in three different ways, either yeah. through LinkedIn or through one of the websites.
0: Excellent. Thank you for the conversation. It's been very interesting. And um, I wish you all the best.
1: My pleasure, Ariane. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: So, interesting stuff from Dr. Nashatir Dao If you want to listen to more episodes, check out our Instagram page, Inspirational Minds Podcast. Or if you want to learn more about Dr. Nashatir Dao you can go to progressingminds.com. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we will be back soon with more episodes.